Please stand with me if you are able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 13. Please read with me the verses in bold. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ready and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Kelsey. This is the church where we make you say things like Abinadab. I'm always... I always find it so interesting, uh, you know, s since we started this tradition of reading the scripture together, the, the things that we are, uh, that we're made to say. Beginning today and, carry, and uh, carrying through until the beginning of Lent, uh, and Lent is that season, that Christian calendar season of preparation for Easter, uh, between now and the beginning of Lent, we're going to be teaching through, uh, we're going to do a teaching series through the life of King David in the Old Testament. It's a, a series we're calling After God's Own Heart. 
And we've taken this title from a passage that we didn't uh, read this morning, 1 Samuel 13, 14, but a bit of a summary first of the situation, of the story that we just read about. Uh, to give you an idea of the setting, uh, you can see we're 16 chapters into a book. We didn't start at the beginning. Uh, but, the, the, but to give you an idea of the setting and, and, and the moment in Israel's history, let me just read a few of the lyrics from a song by a guy named Andrew Peterson. The song is called So Long Moses on his Christmas album. And he sings that the people of Israel cried out and they said, we want a king on a throne full of power with a sword in his fist. Will there ever be, will there ever be a king like this? And then the verse says, hello Saul, first king of Israel. You were foolish and strong, so you didn't last long. Goodbye, Saul. That's the context. Uh, We enter the story in the moment in which the failure and unfaithfulness of Saul, the first king of Israel, is on full display. And uh, the prophet Samuel, for whom the book is named, 1 Samuel, uh, first of a series of two, Samuel says in 1 Samuel 13, Uh, to Saul, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. A man after God's own heart. This is the, the, the scripture's first description of David, even before he's named as this coming king. And that is specifically what we're interested in exploring and discovering over these next weeks. What does it mean to be someone after God's own heart? We'll look at some of the most famous episodes and escapades of David's life. Um, Not necessarily for moral teaching, although there will be some of that. And not to hold David up as an example, because to be quite honest, he's not always a very good example but to try to explore what it means to be someone after God's own heart. After God's own heart when you're winning and when you're losing. After God's own heart when you are lost and when you know that you've really messed up. And so this morning I want to look at the story of David's anointing as the would-be king in 1 Samuel 16 and ask, what does it mean that The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks in the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And we're going to ask three questions. What does it look like to look for God in the midst of grief and despair? What is God looking for when he looks on the heart? And what is God calling us to when he calls us after his own heart? So three questions. First, looking for God in the midst of despair. A few years ago, I discovered a musician named Josh Gerrels. You may or may not be familiar. I was fascinated by his music because it combines acoustic guitar and folk rock and falsetto um, and spoken word, sometimes almost like a rap, Uh, but it's not very hip-hop at all, sort of a way... Just to say, I like it, Olivia's not that big of a fan. Uh, But my favorite song is called Farther Along. And it really spoke to me during 
time when I was uh, struggling with, with grief. And it's a good example of the kind of uh, wordplay from this guy that I love. Let me read you some of the lyrics from farther along. He says, there's so much more to life than we've been told. It's full of beauty that will unfold. And shine like you've struck gold, my wayward son. The deadweight burden weighs a ton. I go down to the river and let it run. Wash away all the things you've done. Forgiveness. All right. Farther along, we'll know all about it. Farther along, we'll understand why. So cheer up, my brothers, and live in the sunshine. We'll understand this all by and by. Do you hear the the way that he uses repeating sounds and the way that he uses words that sound the same but have different meanings and that the rhythm bounces into those rhyming words. If we could read 1 Samuel 16 in the Hebrew, in the original language that it was written in, we would discover something similar. In fact, uh, there is this word, ra'ah, in Hebrew, which uh, is sort of the basis for all kinds of compound words that occur in this passage. Ra'ah means basically to see, but it can be compounded in different ways to mean to discover, to provide, or to appear, or to choose. And all of those words appear throughout this passage in 1 Samuel 16. That root word ra'ah is used, less no, is used no less than nine times to drive home the point of the passage, which is not so much about David, but about what God sees and how he provides and how he chooses. The, pa- the passage begins with Yahweh addressing Samuel, the prophet, the guy the book is named for, and the one we should remember who also anointed Saul, the failed king. And he says to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. There's a lot that Samuel could be grieving about. Maybe he's fighting self-pity over having... Uh, failed as a prophet and chosen the wrong guy. Maybe he's tempted to be embarrassed about Saul's behavior and how it reflects on him as the prophet of Israel. Maybe he's embarrassed about how it makes Israel look in front of other nations. Maybe he's trying not to be overcome with worry about what will become of him and of Israel now that this experiment of a new king has gone so badly. It's in tough situations we can attest to the fact that it's easy to get sucked inward, to become self-focused when your plans failed or when your hopes are dashed. It's easy to think only of how this is happening to me. But there's something instructive, I think, about, Paul, about Samuel's grief. Uh, the passage says that he's grieving, quote, over Saul, not himself, In the midst of uncertainty and distress, Samuel's grieved and concerned about someone he probably cared about. And specifically because his friend Saul, this one who he had chosen, has rejected and and rebelled against God's good design and against God's design for kingship. So he's, he's grieved over Saul's sin. And he's grieved over Saul's rejection of God and probably grieving over what in his mind, seems like the inevitable fall or, uh, of Israel, that they will follow Saul in his rebellion. 
So there's something pretty appropriate about Samuel's grief that puts him in a position to hear from God. Because he's grieved over godly things, uh, he is listening and looking for what God might be doing. Are we putting ourselves in that kind of position when things are hard? Do we mourn over sin or talk about it, gossip about it? Do we lament church failures and divisions or do we stand in self-righteousness and judge other people in their failure? Do we sink into self-pity or grieve injustice instead? Lament godlessness and seek righteousness. Expect that farther along, we might understand why God is doing what he's doing. If, in fact, God is not done writing the story, and if, there is a, if there's a reoccurring theme in Scripture, it seems to be that when people say, okay, it's done, God's still writing. When people say it's failed, God says, I'm not done yet. He says to Samuel, fill up your horn and let's go. I'm going to anoint a new king. He says, for I have seen Ra'ah, a king, and I have provided Ra'ah for myself a king from the sons of Jesse. I'm not done. I'm unfazed. This didn't surprise me. This has never been out of my control. And farther along, you'll understand why. So what is God looking for when he looks on the heart? In the 2015 Broadway musical Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda writes about a back office uh, political deal. In fact, he writes about every back office political deal, and he says this, no one really knows how the game is played, the art of the trade, how the sausage gets made. We just assume that it happens but no one else is in the room when it happens. That's the sort of thing the elders in Jerusalem were wary of when Samuel shows up in their town. They no doubt have heard about Samuel's confrontation with Saul and his fallout with him. And so what's he doing in our town? It can't be anything good. Uh, this is going to get us in trouble if we get involved with this guy and his back office deals. And Samuel had some of the same fears. He says, I can't go around doing backroom anointings of kings. If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. But God says, invite Jesse and his sons to a worship service and I'll show you, Ra'ah, what's next. So here's the scene. Samuel sets up a worship service and a sacrifice and Jesse rolls in with his sons and Samuel has been told that one of them is going to be the next king of Israel. And as soon as he sees Eliab, he's convinced. He's ready to pop the cork on his uh, oil horn and get to the anointing. He's tall, he's ripped, and he's the firstborn, which is how it's supposed to work. Except the problem is, and if Samuel would remember or look back. We don't have to look too far back to remember that that's exactly what happened when Samuel anointed Saul the first time. For Samuel chapter 9, 2 says that Saul was a handsome young man, that there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. For his, shoulder, for his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. But our passage says in verse 7 that the Lord said to Samuel, 
And this may be the most important verse that we look at today. Probably you could call it a theme verse for the entire story of David. He says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees Yerah, not as man sees Yerah. Man looks Ra'ah on the outward appearance, Ra'ah, but the Lord looks Ra'ah on the heart. What does it mean that the Lord looks on the heart? Well, if you only read verse 7, right? Don't look at his outward appearance or the height or his stature because I've rejected him. If you only looked at verse 7, you might think that it means God only chooses ugly people is not what it means. Uh, In fact, in just a few verses, we're going to learn that David was ruddy and that he was handsome. Maybe he wasn't as tall as Eliab or uh, Shemaiah or any of his other four uh, older brothers, but in Abinadab, we made you say that one. Um, But the point is that external appearance is not the point. And cultural expectations, who the firstborn or whatever should be the one, is not the point. The king would not be the firstborn, and he would not be the one that uh, Samuel immediately is drawn to. The point, in fact, is that while we will discover that David had many gifts, that giftedness is not the point. We each, I think, know all too well uh, when we're being used for our gifts and not for who we are. We have a sense when our relationship with somebody has become transactional. They're just trying to get something from, pe- from me. Uh, people want us around because of what we can do. And our recent church history, I think particularly in stories of some of the largest mega churches in America, is littered with the fallout of leaders who were elevated because of their giftedness and not because of their character or their godliness. They got things done. Man, they could start a bonfire in a rainstorm. But they end up in stories of churches that uh, exploded with growth while chewing up and spitting out their staff members or their pastors or people that attended and leaving leaders, even the the leading pastors themselves, feeling lonely and empty and sometimes, in extreme cases, even suicidal. So it's not about appearance and it doesn't begin with giftedness, then what is God calling us to when he calls us after his own heart? It's interesting to note that in the New Testament, when Paul talks about the qualifications for leaders, for elders and for deacons, you can read that in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, there is certainly no physical description of what those people should look like. There is no preferred body type for elder. But there's also no reference to a perfect moral record or a required resume of accomplishments. We most certainly need leaders who are gifted, but the description of a leader begins with a description of character and faith. In another place, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, he says, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He's not talking about appearances. He's not talking about actions, necessarily. He's not 
listing accomplishments. The, the, these are not the ways that you will know that the, the Spirit is at work in somebody's heart, not in the, necessarily in the things that they do or the things that they accomplish, but uh, the indication that God's Spirit is at work in someone's heart is this kind of fruit. This is consistent with what Jesus said as well. In Mark chapter 7, he teaches that it's not what's on the outside that will defile a person, but what comes out of a person, out of their heart, is what will defile. In another place, he says, you'll recognize them by their fruits. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the distressed tree bears bad fruit. And in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus actually confronts leaders religious leaders who have a great outward appearance but are spiritually dead in their hearts. And he says, you brood of vipers, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Matthew 3, 7 to 10. Repentance. We usually associate that word with sin or disobedience, something that needs to be repented of. But it actually means turning. It means specifically turning away from whatever it is or whatever we want and turning towards God. And if you track the reign of Saul, the first king of Israel, what you find there is that this is the thing that he simply could not do. He would not do it. Admit that he was wrong, that he had been headstrong, or that he'd been rebellious. He could not and would not turn from what he was up to and towards the Lord. And as we track in these next weeks the life of David, we will not find that it is a straight line of faithfulness and perfect morality. But what we will find, in fact, is many, many, many opportunities for repentance to show David's response to what's happening with the fruit of repentance. I want to challenge you to consider that the change that you hope for will be found in a lifestyle of repentance. Rather than a lifestyle of keeping up appearances or even a lifestyle of pursuing strict moral vigor, repentance is completely unconcerned with outward appearance. In fact, sometimes it, it is very much opposed to it. In fact, attempting to appear like you have it all together when you don't is actually, in some ways, the opposite of repentance. It's a hardness of heart. It's a refusal to turn and admit how you're doing. The repentance, uh, re repentance is turning. Repentance is not just remorse. You know, we, we'll have a reaction in which we say, I can't believe I did that, or... I just can't forgive myself. That's remorse. But repentance is not just remorse, or it's more than remorse. It's, and it's actually not resolution, uh, saying, I promise to do better next time. Repentance is a realization of reality. Reality is, and the scripture says, I'm a sinner. Or as Richard Loveless says, I am an organic network of compulsive attitudes, beliefs, and behavior deeply rooted in my alienation from God. And repentance is the regular, unsurprised response to sin. I did that. 
I can believe that I'm like that. Lord, forgive me, you're my only hope. Can you imagine the friendships that could have been saved by that response? Can you imagine the marriages that could have been saved? In David's case, it's the kingdom of Israel that gets saved by repentance. And ultimately, the lineage of Christ by David's heart after God. And so our passage says that David is anointed king by Samuel. And the passage says that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. In the same way that he promises that the spirit of the Lord will be each of ours in Christ. More on the connection between the spirit of God and the kingship later in the series. But Yahweh not only equips, Yahweh not only calls David, but he equips him with his spirit to do the work that he is calling him to. And that is the promise that he gives to believers when we put our faith in Christ, that he not only calls us to himself, but by his spirit will equip us with what we need to do the work that he calls us to. And for David, we will find almost immediately that, the, that when, when the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, what it means is trouble. Or in the words of folk singer uh, Ray LaMontagne, oh, trouble, 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 trouble. Feels like every time I get back on my feet, she come around and knock me down again. David's heart for God, his, his faithfulness to his call, and the, the obvious spirit of God at work in his, high, in his life will ultimately thrust him into conflict with those who refuse to repent, into danger from the jealousy of Saul, into conflict with his own family. One of the big episodes is betrayal by his own son. Commentator Dale Davis says, David, the man with the spirit, will be hunted and betrayed, trapped and escaping, hiding in caves, living in exile, driven to the edge. It should be no surprise to us then that Jesus understands himself to be the son of David. Not only the descendant of David who was foretold to be the uh, forever king, but remember that as soon as the spirit of God descended on Jesus like a dove in his baptism, then came trouble. Temptation in the desert, opposition, disbelief, betrayal, and ultimately crucifixion for the purpose of showing us God's own heart, putting on display God's character in the person of Jesus. The fruit of God's love is this life and this hope for all of us who live lives of repentance and turn to Jesus whose, we, we should note, Jesus, whose trouble was not his own. It was ours. He suffered the consequences of our sin so that he might pour out on us his spirit on those who would receive it and have life. His spirit, which takes hearts of stone and turns them into hearts of flesh 
hearts after his own heart.